All right. Time to start, 1230, at least by my watch. That's the one that matters. Um, <clears throat> so just for the podcast sake, I don't have my microphone because I've had some problems with it. So the ambient, so we're recording from the phone mic. So the ambient noise it's going to pick up. So just remember that if you cough or you want to talk or you want to clatter your silver or whatever, <laughs> do me a favor. And today, try to be a little, you don't have to be like church mice, but uh, just, I'm, I'm mainly explaining this too for the people that listen because I've gotten some emails like, hey, the sound's been there. I'm like, yeah, I know, because we don't have an audio engineer. Um, <clears throat> so that being said, we're going to try to make the best of what we can this week. And hopefully those of you that do listen to the podcast, you will notice a difference in quality next week. Fingers crossed. But um, we are in Joshua. We did last week 13 and 14. And that puts us at 15 this week, for those of you that aren't good at math. We're, um, you can laugh in the background. I mean, that's fine to have ambient noise because that makes me sound popular. The chapter 15, so where we were was Joshua is now parceling out the land. Okay, so Israel has conquered, the wars have happened, the uh, attacking of the fortresses of the Canaanites has happened. The last, we ended last week with the account, the best account of old man strength in the Bible, where old man Caleb is just like, give me the hardest, strongest enemies there are, and we'll take them. And he does. And so the last battle of Israel's collective uh, conquest is of this old you know, 85-year-old, still in the vigor of his youth, at least in his mind. We don't know if he was or not, but he thought he was. And he and his clan go and they take over Hebron and they drive out the Anakites that were there who were formidable, formidable, powerful warriors. And so it's a really cool bookend to uh, the Caleb's story. Well, we're not done yet. There's going to be more of that. But now the tribes, for the next four, five chapters or so, <clears throat> the tribes' lands have to be divvied up because you've got this group that were used to being one people in a central sanctuary, right? So they were like a big donut camp. The middle of the donut was the temple, or the tabernacle rather, and then around that donut hole were the Levites, and then around them, radiating outwards in all directions, were the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. We saw that back when we were reading Exodus together, or reading Numbers together. So they've done, that's their life for 40 years. That's all they've known. Now they're going into a land area the size of uh, New Jersey, maybe. And so you're moving from, you know, 50 to 100,000, maybe a couple hundred thousand people. Some people say 2 million. Again, we talked about the numbers and, and there's different views on that. But biblically, it's anywhere from 50,000 to 2 million. So whatever you're comfortable with, I don't care. Uh, pick your poison, but that many people dwelling together for 40 years after being slaves for 400 years. So now they are doing, they're coming into their own land and they are going to disperse. And that's when things are going to shift dramatically. And that's what Moses had tried to prepare them for in Deuteronomy. And now Joshua is the one who God is calling along with Eliezer the priest to say, okay, now so that everyone's on the same page. Here's how it's going to work. And so the land was divided up. It was divided up by lots. The word allotment comes from the casting of lots and in English and Hebrew. It's one of the rare words that works in both languages. 
And so Israel, the tribes, were given land based on God's choosing, based on him choosing who's going to be where and, and you know, which tribes get what areas. And, and all of this was determined by lots. And it's preserved, not entirely, but parts of it are preserved in Joshua in the narrative of it. There were probably more detailed lists than what we get. But what we get in the, jo the Joshua account is the scriptural uh, theological impact of it. So, for instance, the first tribe that's going to get their land apportioned is going to be not the firstborn. That was Reuben. Not the secondborn. That was Simeon. Reuben and Simeon lost their inheritance rights as first and secondborn. And not the thirdborn. That was Levi. Levi got inheritance rights that were different because of their devotion to the Lord back during the golden calf incident. So it's going to fall to the fourthborn, Judah. And Judah becomes the most dominant tribe. Judah becomes, this is prophesied all the way back in Genesis when, when Israel was prophesying over Judah on his deathbed. And Judah, the tribe, God blessed. And they became the dominant tribe. And so they are basically going to be the first tribe after the Transjordan tribes got their apportionment that we saw last week. The ones who said, hey, we'll settle for life outside of Canaan because we like it here. Now it's going to deal with, okay, the rest of the nine and a half tribes and their land being divvied up, and it's going to start with Judah. And this chapter is one that people skip all the time because it's just place names and seems to have no theological bearing. And part of the theology of the chapter is you're given a walking tour of the boundaries of Judah. And, in, and I say a walking tour because the verbs that are used in this chapter to describe the boundary are verbs like walked, went up, turned right or turned around, surrounded, went down. It's like you're, it's like you're, uh, you ever use Google Earth and do a little tour on Google Earth? For those of you that are under the age of 30, you may know what I'm talking about. Those of you that are over the age of maybe 40, you may not know. Google Earth, you can actually do a virtual tour of all of these places. <laughs> I'm 40, so I'm right there in the sweet spot. I can do the technology, but I also remember analog. Um, but with Google Earth, you can take a tour, a, a virtual tour of places, and you just put in the places you want to see, hit the button, and it will actually zoom you all the way from outer space all the way down to street level. And you can just cruise around and see different places. Well, that's what these chapters are. Before there was Google Earth and for the Israelite mind and for the people of the day and for the people at that time and the people that knew those places, the people that fought for those places, the people that won those battles, people that are from that hometown, right? Everybody gets a little kick when a comedian or an entertainer or a celebrity or something mentions your hometown, yeah. you know, like if you're from from Bessemer City and somebody is like, yeah, Bessemer City, you'll hear somebody in the crowd go, no. Right? Because you just get a little thrill when your town is mentioned. I remember one of my favorite moments ever was in college, freshman, sophomore year, freshman year, I was watching The Simpsons because I'm a huge Simpsons fan. And Nelson, one of the characters, says, you know, I've always wanted to see Macon, Georgia. And I was like, that's my town. Oh, my gosh. They mentioned Macon on The Simpsons. And I was a huge because I was living in Macon at the time. Born in Savannah, I've lived in Macon. Long story. Anyway. It was, a, it was just this neat little moment. My town got mentioned that nobody cares about. And um, so for Israelites reading this and reading these lists of names that to us seemed like gibberish, to them it was, no, that's my town. That's my city. That's my place. 
So it gives them a sense of rootedness that we don't always have in a mobile society. You know, I've lived in half a dozen different places. This is Charlotte's the longest I've ever lived in any one place, ever. Um, and, and so we don't have this rootedness to the land that people in other parts of the world have. And that's part of the importance of these chapters. So in chapter 15, we're going to look at what this boundary does here. It's going to trace uh, throughout the, the area. And this is southern Israel. This is, this is what would later become the kingdom of southern Israel, Judah, named after the tribe of Judah. But it says, the allotment for the tribe of Judah, clan by clan, extended down to the territory of Edom, to the, to the desert of Sin in the extreme south. This is Edom. So this is modern-day Jordan, uh, Jordan, south, getting down towards Saudi Arabia area. So all the way down there. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea, crossed south along the Scorpion Pass, continued on to Zin, and went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past, he then it ran, you hear these words, then it ran past Hezron up to Adar and curved around to Karka. Then it passed along Asmon and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the sea. This is their southern boundary. So it just traced the southern line of the boundary of Israel, uh, of, of the boundary of ancient Israel at least. So now it's going to move to the eastern boundary. Eastern boundary is simple. Eastern boundary is the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan. So from where the Jordan and the Dead Sea meet, that's the eastern boundary. The northern boundary, so now it's going to cut across and it's going to do the northern boundary of Judah's territory. The northern boundary started from the bay at the sea at the mouth of the Jordan, went up to Beth Hogla, and continued north to Beth Araba to the stone of Bohan, son of Reuben. The boundary then went up to Debir from the valley of Achor and turned north to Gilgal, which faces the pass of Adamim south of the gorge. It continued along the waters of Enshemesh and came out at Enrogel. Now this is modern Jerusalem area. Enro modern Enrogel, I believe, is what today is known as the city of David in Jerusalem. Then it ran up the valley of Ben-Hinnom along the southern slope of the Jebusite city, that is, Jerusalem. So along the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Guess what the valley of Ben-Hinnom in Aramaic is? The valley of Gehenna. Guess what image Jesus used when he wanted to describe hell? Gehenna. So that's this, this valley of Ben-Hinnom. Today it's a highway in Israel. There's literally a highway, a highway to hell. <laughs> literally. Uh, traffic is hell. Like you can make so many jokes about it. But it's modern Jerusalem. It's on the backside of the old city. And that's the valley of Ben-Hinnom. But in, the time of, in, in this time, Israel doesn't control that. That's still, Jerusalem's not even called Jerusalem. It's called Jebus. And Jebus is the, where the Jebusites live. And only later are we going to find out the fate of Jebus. But the boundary, so the Judah boundary goes right up to that area. Cuts across. From there it climbed up to the top of the hill west of the Hinnom Valley at the north end of the Valley of Rephaim. From the hilltop of the boundary headed towards the spring of the waters of Naphtoah. Came out of the towns of Mount Ephron and went down towards Baalah. That is Kiriath Yarim. Then it curved westward from Baalah to Mount Seir, ran along the northern slope of Mount Yarim, that is Kesalon, continued down to Beth Shemesh and crossed the Timna. It went to the north slope of Ekron, turned towards Shikron, passed along to Mount Baalah and reached Jabneel. The boundary ended at the sea. So this line was just traced from around the Jordan River, running up, going down, running around these cities and valleys, all the way, and it ends at the sea. 
So again, this is, this is a virtual tour of the land for the Judites and for all of Israel. And then the western boundary is as easy as the eastern boundary. The western boundary is the coastline of the Great Sea. These are the boundaries around the people of Judah by their clans. This is Judah's outward periphery. This is what surrounds Judah. Now, just like in the last chapter, there's going to be another interlude that's going to have to do with who we would consider the outsiders. This is going to have to do with Caleb. Verse 13, in this little interlude section, we read, In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of the Anak. We read about that last chapter. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Um, these were, this is fascinating because a lot of you, some of you were here, but a lot of you weren't here back when we read Numbers. When Joshua and Caleb first entered the land, and they came to Hebron, these three rulers were running the show. And all of the spies, except Caleb and Joshua, said the people of the land are too powerful. We can't take them. That was 40 years earlier. More than 40 years earlier. Now as an old man, this is, this is the picking up from what we read last chapter. This is, again, the dischronologization where Scripture will tell you an event and then it will tell you some stuff and then it will jump back to that event and give you some more details. So now we find out that old man Caleb, you know, octogenarian, the end of his life, takes his clans, goes up, drives out the very three warlords that were running the place 40 years before that the rest of the tribes were too scared to, to even believe they could... Uh, drive out. So it's this cool bookend to Caleb's life. Is that the people that were there when he was there the first time and wanted to go after him. And the other spies said, no, we can't do it. And turned all the people against him. 40 years, a whole generation wasted. Now, finally, at the end of his life, Caleb goes back to that place. Those three are still in charge. They're probably old men as well. And he and his clans take them out. And so it's like this fitting into Caleb's story. I love it. And remember, again, Caleb is a Gentile. His name means dog, euphemism for Gentile. He's a Kenizzite. He's from the tribe of, he's from the sons of Kenaz. He was incorporated into Judah, and yet his story is told. He lives on as part of one of these non-Hebrew Israelites that we read about, or non-ethnically descended. Anyway, but we're not done. From there... He marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb's nephew. <clears throat> so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Now Othniel, so this is Caleb's nephew. And, and, and again, the, the, in Hebrew, there aren't... English, we have words like uh, cousin, first cousin, first cousin twice removed, father-in-law, you know, all of these terms. Hebrew, they don't. So <clears throat> brother of could mean brother of, it could mean cousin of, it could mean you know, nephew of. It, uh, the, the terms are a little bit loose. But what's being said most importantly is it's in the tribe. So within, or rather within the clan, Caleb says, this is the city that in the area that he's been given to take. And there are these fortresses, these holdouts. And so in the battles of taking over that were recounted in the previous chapter, in one of them he says, whoever takes this town, this city, this fortress, 
I'll give my daughter in marriage. So Othniel steps up. And Othniel is within the clan, and so it's a good arrangement because they, endogeny was a good thing. They wanted to keep tribal allotments within the clans or within the tribes. Today we look at it, I mean, it's still legal to marry your cousin, but we're just like, Ugh. you know, but this is one of those cultural things where that's how it worked back then. There wasn't anything against it. But the point of this is Othniel is the one who takes the land. So Othniel gets to marry Aksa, Caleb's daughter. Othniel as we're going to see in the next book of the Bible, becomes the first judge in the, in the book of Judges. The ones who God raises up whenever Israel goes astray. God raises up a deliverer, a judge. That's what the judges are. People like Deborah, Samson, Gideon, um, Ehud. God will raise them up. Well, the first one he raises up is this Gentile Kenizzite, Othniel. And from the family of Caleb to deliver all of Israel. So it's this pattern. It's, it's implicit in the Old Testament. God using the unexpected, using what you wouldn't, you know, within the tribe of Judah, in the middle of the tribe of Judah's allotments, you're getting, again, this story about this seeming outsider, but who is faithful. Caleb, the faithful Gentile. Othniel, the faithful Gentile. And now we're going to, just like with the book started with the story of Rahab, you know, or as Rahab, the faithful Canaanite, or yeah, the Canaanite prostitute female uh, who saw and acted and saved her family. Now we get another story, very similar, another woman. Uh, verse 17, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Oxen to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. That verb, urged, does not have a positive connotation. It's the verb for to nag. <laughs> it's the verb for to push or it's even used to translate as incite in negative connotation uh, elsewhere in scripture. It's, it's, so it's, so it's kind of like her, she's not politely or demurely. She's like telling Othniel, Othniel who's going to rule judge over all of Israel. Ox is telling him, hey, that field, ask for it. <laughs> so like she's very, this is, this is not just a, uh, you'll see, she's not like, like a china doll. Um, she came to Othniel. She urged him to ask her father for a field. So apparently her father gave the field. And then at some point, this is right after this, when she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? So now there's an interlude here. You'll see in just a minute. She says, go ask for the field. Or possibly she asked, says, hey, we, we need this field. But then she goes and asks. So she's taking, in other words, in this whole section, she's the one taking control. She's the one asserting what she believes her, her rights are for her and her clan. So Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, NIV says, do me a special favor. The Hebrew does not say that. The Hebrew says, do give me a blessing, literally. She says, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, that's in the south, that's the desert. So she got land, but it was in the Negev, it was in the wilderness, it was in the desert. Give me also springs of water. So in other words, she's like, I've got this desert land. So Othniel apparently asked for the field, he got it, but it was in the Negev. Well, you need water there. She knows it. So to preserve, to, 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 to continue on her family and, and their livelihood and everything, she goes to Caleb, hey, we need water. And he gives her the springs. So it's this very, 
it's weird in that it's brief, it's succinct, it's kind of jarring, doesn't seem to fit in the narrative, <laughs> but yet part of that theologically to me is interesting because again, within this story of seeming outsiders who are in the midst of Israel, in the tribe of Judah, you have a woman speaking up over two of the giants in terms of men of stature and asserting her needs and getting them. Just like you had Rahab speaking up to the two spies and saying, hey, do me this favor. You're going to come in and destroy this city. Save me and everybody in this house. So you have this woman speaking up and receiving. It's, it's just it's interesting. It cuts against the grain of a lot of people's opinions of women's roles and in the Old Testament especially. And how they were just, oh, they're just property. Yeah, the Bible teaches women were just property. No, not if you read it closely. In fact, in the next book, one of those judges can be a woman. So if, men are, if women aren't suited to lead in any capacity, somebody forgot to tell Deborah. Because she's going to lead the whole country. But the point is that you get these glimpses, you get these hints, and then again, when you get to the ministry of Jesus, you see women elevated to a stature that was scandalous in his day. Whether it's talking to a Samaritan woman by himself at a well, which you don't do, whether it's the first witnesses to the resurrection are all women. The people, except for the disciple Jesus loved, standing there at the cross when all the others had fled were women. In other words, women are elevated. Paul, when he writes the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world, he writes it and he sends it by a woman to have it read to the church at Rome. So that's why Phoebe is the one who he commends the letter of the book of Romans to. These are all details that get lost in this cursory reading and sound bites and just stereotypes that people have. But, but throughout scripture, you see these things that even in a patriarchal culture, and it was a patriarchal culture, for sure. This is not like modern feminism by any stretch of the imagination. But within that culture, in God's word, you see these pushing back against it time after time. You see, you see uh, what we've talked about it before. You see a hermeneutical trajectory when it comes to how women are treated in the ancient world and then in scripture, how they're elevated from the culture. Not, not in the Old Testament, not where they're going to be in the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, not where they are today in terms of equality, in terms of all of the value and things. But you see the trajectory set in scripture. And that's what the church builds off of. And has for the past 2,000 years. So it's just an interesting narrative, interlude, tucked away in the middle of this virtual tour of Judah. So now, we've got five minutes. We're going to get through the rest of the chapter. But it's easy because the rest of the chapter is just a list. It says, verse 20, this is the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, clan by clan. Now the NIV puts a semicolon or puts a colon there, meaning what's coming next is what it's referring to. But every time that phrase is used, this is the inheritance of the tribe of such and such, in scripture elsewhere, it usually refers back to what has been just covered. So everything that's just been covered, that walking tour of Judah, is more likely what this verse is referring to. Doesn't matter either way, it's just one of those things where translations have to make a choice. So your translation may not have a colon there. It may be referring back to the previous paragraph. But, now it's going to break up. So we've done a tour of the circumference of Judah. Now it's going to go and say, now these are the towns. 
and the areas, the cities, the, the areas within where all of the clans settled. So the southernmost towns of the tribe of Judah in the Negev, towards the boundary of Edom, this is down here in, in southern Israel, were Kabzil, Eder, Yager, Kena, Demona, Adada, Kadesh, Hatzor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Beloth, Hazor, Hadata, Kirioth, Hezron, that is Hazor. Hazor's a popular name, right? Remember, Hazor was the big, big, big city up north, so there's a lot of little Hazors. Just like in America, there's a Springfield in every state, pretty much, right? Or there's like a, a Columbia or something. You know, there's these different city names that are just Jonestown or wherever. Um, there are these names that are repeated over and over because there are multiple places with the same names. So it goes on. Amam, Shema, Moladah, Hazar Geratah, Heshmon, Bet Pelet, Hatzor Shaul, Beersheba, Biziah, Bala, Im, Ezim, El Todad, Kasil, Hormon, Ziklag, Matanah, Sansana, Labaoth, Shulchim, Ayan, Rimon, a total of 29 towns and their villages. Now again, <laughs> southern Georgia people. Um, but again, these, these names just Blah, 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 right? So they all have meaning. They all have, they all have derivations. They all come from stuff. Like later, at the end of the chapter, it'll say, uh, we'll skip down verse 61 in the desert. Beth Arabah. Well, that means the house of the Arabah. What's the Arabah? That's that whole section of the Jordan Valley. So this is the house of the Jordan Valley. All right? These names have meaning in Hebrew. They just, in English, they leave them untranslated. So they don't have that meaning for us. And then NIV is kind of inconsistent because it'll translate uh, Midim, Sekaka, Nibshan, and then it's the city of salt instead of Yer Melchama or whatever the word is. So again, these, these names that are just gibberish to us, they were place names, they had meaning, they had importance. But here's the key at the end of this. So you can read through all the towns and the cities. Um, some of these cities mentioned are Levitical cities. So some of these cities in Judah are gonna be where the Levites live in Judah. So the cities, Beth Shemesh was one, Ayan is one, Libna, Jatir, um, Debir, Eshtemoth, Holon, Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, Judah. These are going to be Levitical cities we're going to see in chapter 21. So the Levites will be settled among them. But the chapter ends. So after it goes through the different areas of Judah, it goes through the western foothills, which is the Shephelah, then the mountainous country, then, which is where Hebron and all the big foothills, and then in the desert in the south, <coughs> And then it ends, it says, verse 63, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the people of Judah. So at the time of Joshua, Judah has captured all of this territory in battle. Joshua had done it. And then it was up to the tribes to go in and take possession of, to occupy the lands that had been won in battle in the previous section of the book. And so that happens. But remember what we talked about. Joshua, the first half of the book, presented everything as, remember the phrases that were used? They utterly destroyed the city and they left alive nothing that breathes. Well, no, they didn't, right? So what we find out is, is the Bible contradicting itself? No, it's actually using language that was hyperbolic that was exaggeration, that was military battle language. What it meant was, in terms of battle, they decisively defeated the coalitions of the Canaanites. But as anybody in the military that's ever had to deal with winning a war and then the aftermath of it, going in and actually 
taking and parceling out the territory, driving out, rooting out resistance, things like that, can take years, decades, in this case, even centuries. And so by the time, whenever Joshua was written, this gives us a clue that it was written before the time of David, that the Jebusites were still lodged right, just right there in the middle of Judah in this fortress built on a hill on a mountain called Zion in this city called Jebus. And that was this thorn in their side. And it would stay that way until 2 Samuel chapter 5. David finally drives them out and puts the capital in this city, Jerusalem, this fortress. So even in Joshua, all does not mean all. And the battles are not, the battles in terms, the war is over, but there are still pockets of fighting. There are still territories to conquer. And Israel is going to get chided at the beginning of the next book, Judges, for not finishing what they started under Joshua. What Joshua successfully did, and then Israel's like, eh, it's good enough. We got, it. we got what we need. We're not going to carry out what God wants us to do completely. And because of that, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the others who remain there, who God specifically was sending Israel to judge and drive out, they remain a thorn in Israel's side. And for generations, it's this cyclical Israel. It's oppressed by the very same people, or they're lured into worship of the gods of these very same people. All of the stuff that God warned about, because they don't do fully what God had led them to do under Joshua. That has spiritual implications for our lives today. Obviously, when God's calling us to something, do we do it until we know we've done what God's called us to do? Do we do it until we think, that's eh, good enough? That's up to us to pray through and think about and consider. And, but the text is letting us know in Israel's history that those tribes that were, or those peoples that they left, that they let remain instead of fulfilling God's promise, would continue to uh, oppress, harass, and be a thorn in their side for generations to come. But we got to go. Time's up. So next week we're going to go through two chapters because they're quick. And we're going to continue this for a couple weeks looking at this virtual tour of the land. And then we'll wrap up the book. I, we're probably going, just a heads up, we're probably going to take a break at some point in the summer. Um, I don't know what part of maybe July or August. But one of those months or maybe overlapping, there's going to be a few weeks break that I'm just going to need a break because I've got to prep for judges. <laughs> it takes a long time. So, um, but I'll let you know in advance so you can plan for that. Otherwise, everybody have a great week. There's seconds if you want some. And we'll see you next week.